Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any information about our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. I want to remind you that, you know, there was uh, a couple of weeks ago we looked at, we looked at uh, the, the, the uh, preface, if you will, for what I'm going to talk about today. But I want to begin by taking you far, far away into the Mediterranean. There is a statue in the Galleria dell'Accademia in Florence, Italy, that is perhaps the most famous statue in the world. I think all of us would recognize it instantly. I think that if we found ourselves walking along in the Galleria dell'Accademia, we would look up and we would look as we walk through that gallery, we do a double take and we kind of go, statue, David? Think about it for a while, it'll come to you. Statue, David? Come on. <laughs> really, let's work today. You're going to have to be a little bit quicker than that, or I'm going to be repeating myself all morning long. If we did that, we'd be right. One thing I never appreciated about Michelangelo's statue of David is it stands fully 18 feet tall. I bet Goliath would have actually gone running if David had showed up 18 feet tall. But of course, this isn't meant to be lifelike. It's Michelangelo's artistic impression of what David represents, and I don't think he was actually that far off the mark. David, as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, was a, a giant of a man in Scripture, combining the military genius of Alexander the Great, the political savvy of Winston Churchill, the literary skill of Fanny Crosby, and the hand-eye coordination of Tom Brady with the musical ability of Gyra. <laughs> Do you know... Jaira can play every single instrument we have on the stage here. He's amazing. But the real measure of David's stature is that he was a man after God's own heart. He was preoccupied with the love of God. It took Michelangelo four years to finish the statue of David. The huge task was made all the more difficult because he was working with a flawed piece of marble. The block, you see, had been damaged while they were removing it from the quarry in the first place. But that is almost appropriate as well, isn't it? Because David was also flawed, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, reaching a climax when the prophet Nathan relates a story to him from which David responds to the villain in the story with this righteous indignation like, that guy doesn't deserve to live, only to have Nathan show him that he was that villain in the story. He was that man. You the man, David. And we saw how, to his credit, David responded with, I've sinned against the Lord. I am deeply flawed. But God already knew all about those flaws, and through David's confession and his continuing devotion to and love for God, he worked in David's life so that he was indeed a man after God's own heart. And out of that work, David's 23rd Psalm was born. It begins with one of the most well-known and loved metaphors in the Bible, the Lord is my shepherd. David is longing to describe to us his relationship with God in a way that would truly represent it, but would also be so recognizable to his readers in that day. We've probably all used metaphors or sung them like you ain't nothing but a hound dog crying all the time, right? Of course you ain't actually a hound dog or in another metaphor, a couch potato, but it evokes a word picture that tells us a lot about 
what we're looking at or who we're looking at tells us a lot about that person we're describing. Or we could raise the bar today and quote Shakespeare, who wrote, all the world's a stage, and we're all players in it, right? Again, the world isn't the stage, but we totally get the picture of what Shakespeare is getting at, right? We just sang, uh, or actually we just heard through scripture, I am the bread of life, another metaphor. But here's the thing, a metaphor used in scripture is a serious thing as we're about to see because it does more than simply describe by comparison. It identifies by equation. In other words, it's more serious than just a like or as. The image is meant to become that through which someone is really known and understood. And because the word picture is a lasting image in us, it conveys more and speaks more powerfully than a simile, for instance. David meant it when he used the word is. Equal sign, not the word like. Let me say it to you in that frame. The Lord is like a shepherd. Kind of loses something, doesn't it? Shepherd carried with it a very deep and rich picture in Israel's culture because the ways of sheep and their shepherd were familiar to everyone. They all understood fundamentally that the shepherd's primary duties were a shepherd provides. He provides food, shelter, the basic necessities of life for his sheep. Number two, a shepherd protects. He defends the sheep against all enemies, all harm. A shepherd also guides. He leads sheep when they're confused and don't know which way to go, which is basically all the time. And four, a shepherd corrects. Any problem that comes along in the sheep, he corrects it. The amazing thing is this. Just as we look at that for a second, God has promised to do these four things in our lives if we'll trust him like that, if we'll let him be our shepherd. The shepherd nurtured and led the sheep and fended off predators. The sheep were his responsibility. The Lord is my shepherd is a confession which declares commitment, which declares trust in the Lord. But here's the genius in the inspiration that David received from the Lord in writing this psalm. See, it's a personal, singular confession in the first person. We're going to find out that the Lord is referred to some 15 times in the six verses of Psalm 23, and 17 times in six verses the words I, my, or me are used. This is an intensely personal psalm. It's not that the Lord is our shepherd. Do you see how that removes it slightly? Our shepherd? It's kind of generic. It's kind of corporate feeling then. But no, David makes this intensely personal, which then becomes ours too, you see, when we read it in the first person as well. We just sung, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me. My shepherd. There are two beautiful descriptors or words, pictures, given to us repeatedly in Scripture from God, from God himself to describe the relationship that he has with us. They are both precious to us. One is that God is our Father. He taught us to pray to our Father. And thus we are his children, right? The other is the Lord is our shepherd. Jesus cemented this relationship when he used the same words, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Okay, got to work with me here. God, as our Father, makes us his children. The Lord, as our shepherd, makes us his sheep. One huge thing we got to accept going into this psalm big time at the outset is we are the sheep. We are sheep. 
The Bible puts it like this. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. All of us have run from God's plan for our lives. We have done things that we should not do. We have failed to do things that we ought to do. And we have a hard time actually facing up to that. All week, like, all we, like sheep, have gone astray. Every sheep you see starts out sort of lost. That's our first part in this deal, to accept that we are sheep and get lost. But there's another part to it. And this is critical to understanding what the gospel says. What are the odds that sheep are going to make their way back into the fold on their own? Well, I'm here to tell you not good, friends. Not good at all. The odds are not good because there are predators all around the sheep waiting to devour them. And frankly, the sheep is not a bright animal, friends. Most animals that have an IQ at all, ultimately, when I was growing up, got some kind of a television series of their own to star in, live action. In our society, it was like that, at least when I was growing up. Forget animation for the moment. I'm talking about real live animals here who actually acted, okay? For example, example dolphins, very intelligent creatures. Anybody here remember the name of a dolphin that had his own television series? Flipper, yeah, flipper. Dogs? Lassie, Rin Tin Tin, I'll even take Beethoven. Famous horses, Black Beauty, My Friend Flicka, you go on. Lions, Clarence the Cross-Eyed Lion. Anybody remember the show Daktari? Clarence the Cross-Eyed Lion. Even pigs made it. Anybody here remember Green Acres? Remember the pig's name? Arnold Ziffel, good one, exactly. Anybody here come up with the name of a great television star sheep? Sean the sheep, yeah, sorry. He wasn't real. He's a cartoon. I think I heard Lamb Chop. No. I hate to say this, friends, but Lamb Chop was actually a puppet. It was Sherry Lewis's hand doing the whole thing the whole time. Lamb Chop and Sean are not legitimate sheep. Come to think of it, I can't think of a cat either. Sheep, sheep are notorious creatures of habit. Left to themselves, they will follow the same trail until it turns into ruts, graze the same hills until they become desert wastes, pollute the, the very ground that they're eating from until it's corrupt with disease and parasites. They are just not bright animals, sheep. Sheep are not proactive. Sheep are followers. There is a whole flock of sheep walking, and the first one goes over a cliff. You know what happens to the whole rest of the flock? They all will just follow right over the cliff, every last one of them, one after another. You would think that one of them at least would pause for a moment and say to herself, you know. <laughs> Sally went over the cliff, and she never returned. I'm going to woolly reflect on this truth for a few moments. <laughs> before plunging ahead impulsively, impulsively into the same reckless course of action that she did. But no, it never happens that way. The sheep says to herself, well, okay, I'll give it a try. It doesn't sound like a bad idea to me. <laughs> you know, laughing is kind of a sheep behavior now that I think about it. Now, sheep have only four things going for them, near as I can figure, just four things. Sheep may not care to admit this, but deep down, deep down, sheep Within their very being, they know that they are sheep. 
They also know when they're lost, and they know there is nothing they can do about it. They know their life is not sheep shape, right? Deep down, there's no wool over the sheep's eyes, and it knows its only hope is to be saved. Its only hope is to be led home. And get this, sheep also have the ability to follow a voice, the voice of a shepherd. They come to know their shepherd's voice, and they follow it. Early in the morning, even when the flocks get mixed together overnight, each flock will rise and follow its master to the feeding grounds that he has selected. Even if two shepherds are calling at the exact same time, the sheep never follow the wrong shepherd. They just separate. Unless, unless somewhere along the way, they got lost and started following the wrong shepherd. See, all of this applies to us, folks. We are the sheep. Deep down, we know we cannot self-improve to the point of being perfect. Deep down, we know that without an outside source to lead us, a shepherd, we're doomed. We, but we've been given the chance and the choice on which voice to follow. It's not a mindless, robotic, yes, master, I will do whatever you say, which is really no choice at all. We can know the voice of our shepherd just as easily as real sheep can and follow. The problem comes, of course, when we choose to follow another voice other than the good shepherd's voice. And make no mistake, there are a lot of voices out there calling to us. There's only one. There's only one that's good. The others are distractions at best, absolutely dangerous at worst. Voices who have no other agenda than to lead you straight over the cliff as you blindly follow along. In keeping with the imagery of the psalm, there are wolves out there who work very hard at mimicking the call of the shepherd. They'll even masquerade as one of us. But Jesus warned us to watch out for them. They're ferocious. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. So let me be as direct as I possibly can here. When David very personally says, the Lord is my shepherd, it's immediately apparent that David sees himself as one of the sheep, just like all the rest of us, yet he was also a king and a mighty warrior. There's no one among the sheep who can say, I am the shepherd, because even the greatest sheep the world has ever known will never even begin to attain the qualities and bear up under the sheer weight of the responsibilities we've talked about. You will never hear someone say, huh, I never worry about security because at home right now, watching over my family and all my stuff is my faithful guard sheep. <laughs> Lamb chops. We can, as sheep, mistakenly hear another sheep's voice and under-shepherd, if you will, so often that we start to follow that voice and misplace our trust and our allegiance. The answer, the salvation, of course, is to know the good shepherd's voice and choose to listen and to follow only it. Do you know the good shepherd's voice? You can, you know. We even have his voice recorded so we can study it and learn it and recognize it even in the midst of chaos. I'm holding that recording right here in my hand. Maybe you have it too. It's his voice. It's his word. Know his voice. Not the under-shepherds, 
know his voice. It's the voice of a Pastor Lorne or a Pastor Stephan or any other pastor for that matter, any other under-shepherd, is the voice you follow. You are following the wrong voice. You need to follow Jesus. And you should follow under-shepherds who are leading you to him. We under-shepherds here at Southland... We'll do our best ourselves to hear and follow God and to work within the parameters of the leadership and guidance of the Holy Spirit, providing food and protection. But never, never forget this, that we are also sheep. And we can and we will make mistakes. But just like you, as we focus on and hear the good shepherd's voice, we are gently corrected. The crook of the shepherd comes out and reaches out and leads us back onto the path. He does that with everyone who knows his voice. Do you know his voice? There is only one shepherd who is also not a sheep. Only one. He is the good shepherd, and he, and only he, is the one whose voice we should come to know above all others. There's also an important inference here. There's no point in knowing the shepherd's voice unless you're prepared to do something about it, right? The shepherd doesn't call the sheep early in the morning just to do a head count. Yeah, got all, all of you here, good, yeah, go back and lie down. No, he calls them because they need to follow. They need to get up, they need to start moving. Come and follow me. And they take up sheep walking. Obviously, David, who knew what it was to be a shepherd in this psalm, is not speaking as the shepherd, but as a sheep, one of the flock. And here's the beautiful, magnificent thing. David is not going down the path of being sheepish about his standing as a sheep. He's speaking here with a sense of pride. He's actually speaking with devotion. He's even speaking with admiration here. Take it from me, he says. I know what it is to be a shepherd. And the Lord, the Lord, he's the perfect shepherd. He's the great and good shepherd. He's the one who leads me. How great is that? He's got all the attributes, so not only is he gentle and tender and caring and loving, he's true to his word and responsibility. He's righteous. He's stern as steel. He's as strong as any mighty warrior. He's magnificently tough and totally fearless. He came to set us free from our sins, from our fears, from ourselves. It is this one who insists that he is the good shepherd, the understanding shepherd, the concerned shepherd for the welfare of every single one of his sheep. So much so that he will search high and low for even one lost one. The good shepherd is always thinking about his sheep. What do they need? He's guiding them. He's caring for them. He's protecting them. He's watching over them. He's looking out for their needs. God promises to do that for you. He really will, friends. He will shepherd you. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. You can actually take that statement apart and focus on every word and spend a week. Then he goes on to make a really remarkable statement. He says, I shall not want. The language here is a little archaic, but the idea is quite remarkable. The idea is that because the Lord is a good shepherd and cares and provides for me, I can go through life as a joyful, grateful, contented person. The alternative is to go life, through life with chronic discontent, insatiable desire, and the never-ending, unfulfilled quest for satisfaction. Again, we live in a world that actively works to create such people. 
In many respects, we live in an economy and a society that is built on the production of insatiable desire, the desire to acquire. Some of the smartest people in our world devote most of their working hours thinking of ways to convince us of two things. Number one, you are or you should be discontent. And number two, contentment is just one purchase away. John Rosemond, a syndicated columnist and family psychologist, says that the typical child now, five years old, typical child five years old today, has accumulated an average of 250 toys. Now, since five-year-olds have only lived 260 weeks, they're apparently accumulating almost one toy per week. And are they satisfied? Oh, no. They wallow in discontentment. Of course, only a child would be so foolish. Only a kid would be so naive as to think that contentment would be, could be acquired through some kind of acquisition. Only someone that young would be naive enough to believe that lasting satisfaction could come through a change of external circumstances, right? See, the truth about human beings is when they grow up, they don't get any smarter. The toys just get more expensive. If you're on the internet or turn on the TV or look at billboards by the side of the road, a thousand products cry out, use me, buy me, eat me, wear me, try me, drive me, put me in your hair. They say to us, you will be happy if you have a bigger house, newer car, higher income, better clothes, whiter teeth, fresher breath, or a sleeker body. The kind of things that are offered to people just to make them contented about their hair are staggering. You can wash it, condition it, mouse it to make it look wet, blow dry it to make it look big, spray it to keep it in place, dye it to change the color, straighten it, curl it, wax it if it grows where it shouldn't, and transplant it if it doesn't grow where it should. Not that I'm fixated about hair or anything. The discontent that's promoted to your body alone is staggering. You are told you need abs of iron, other parts of steel, a flatter stomach, sleeker thighs, bigger shoulders. You'd be happy if you were larger in some hemispheres and smaller around the equator, right? <laughs> Infomercials are everywhere for machines that will do this for us, friends. We're saved. But I'll tell you, friends, that the most powerful treadmill of all is the treadmill of insatiable desire. You get on that treadmill of insatiable desire and chronic discontent, you can run as fast as you can for as long as you want, and you will never reach satisfaction. It will look like you're getting close to it, and then it's just gone, just out of reach. And you'll have to run harder, faster, longer, and you will wear yourself out, and you will never get there. Here's the truth about us. We are healthier, we are cleaner, we are richer, we are smarter, at least in this part of the world, than we've ever been before. We live longer, we eat better, we dress warmer, we work less, we play more than at any time in the history of the human race, but are we content? Are you wanting for something? My guess is there's a fair amount of discontentment right with us today, whether you're here with us or at home. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little mass confession that's good for the soul. I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. Hang on a second. If, if, let's say, in the past six months, the past six months there has been any discontentment present in your life. Now, let me just flesh that out for you a little bit in case you think not. A basic way of showing, a basic way of showing discontent is by complaining. It may have been external. You may have done it to some other person, or you may have done it even internally. 
If in the last six months you've complained about your physical appearance or about your education or about your athletic ability or achievements or lack thereof or about finances or about how busy you are or about your spouse or lack thereof, children or lack thereof, if you've complained about your health or your age or your boss or the weather or the potholes or the drivers or the inability to sit in your usual seat here because a newcomer sat there this morning... If you've complained about the officiating at a sporting event, if you've complained because there's been discontentment in your life over the last six months, would you with me now just raise your hands here? Mass confession. Wow, you are a grumpy bunch of people. <laughs> I had no idea. I want to take a moment then to turn the tables on this and talk about what contentment isn't and is. Because if we don't have clarity on this, we're going to get sidetracked and we're going to find ourselves chasing down the wrong road. David did not mean that he had learned simply to accept the status quo throughout the world. He's not talking about being complacent about things like the crumbling of our moral ethic. The call to contentment is not a call to focus on our own comfort regardless of poverty or injustice or evil in the world, and it's out there. The call to contentment is not a call to apathy or resignation. There were times in David's life, as there are in our lives, when we will experience sadness or grief or frustration or anger. Let me get at a defining contentment kind of question here for you. A little examination about contentment. Who is more content? The person with $7 million or the person with seven children? More content. Seven million dollars or seven children? And the correct answer, of course, is the person with seven children because he or she doesn't want any more. <laughs> it's true, right? It's absolutely true. Contentment, okay, real short definition here. Contentment is not being driven by wanting more. Not being driven by wanting more. Contentment is the experience of inner freedom, especially freedom from dissatisfaction, from out-of-balance appetites, from unfulfilled desires. It's freedom from that itch that we get that says, I, 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 I gotta have that. I really gotta have that. I don't think I can live without that until I have it. It is the ability, rather, to live fully in the moment. I don't have to put my life on hold until I get something or someone. It's all just kind of coasting or waiting for that to happen. It's closely related to simplicity, isn't it? To a simple and focused life. I'll give you a picture of it. I've been waiting to do this all day. Hot summer day. I used to be out behind the tractor stacking bales, and the wind and the dust is blowing in my face, and it's hot. And along would come a frosty, cold drink and you just kind of take a sip right <sighs> you've probably all done that right I think I did it with every one of our grandkids after they took a drink what you gonna say right there was a commercial back in the day for a brand of iced tea, and a guy was uh, real hot and thirsty and sweaty. You could see it. He was standing right by a swimming pool. He takes a drink and experiences such intense contentment that he just goes, ah, falls back into the pool. 
Now, because I want you to carry away this notion of contentment this morning, I'm going to ask us here, every one of us, and whether you're at home, do this as well, kind of a strange thing to do. I'm going to ask us all to just make this little sigh together. All right? We'll just go, ah, all together. Because that's what contented people do. Okay? I'm going to ask you to practice contentment. So here we go. One, two, three. Ah, yeah, that sounded good. Because that's what contented people do, right? And I'm going to ask you to practice that contentment over the week ahead. When you go home today, you have to eat whatever it is you're going to have to eat. And instead of complaining about it, which you might be prone to do, you're just going to sit there, you're going to take a bite, and you're going to go... <sighs> That's good. When you get in your car and you're tempted to get upset because there's 100 people ahead of you at the stop sign and so on, you want to see if you can just maneuver up three paces somehow and just get ahead of them. Instead of that, you're going to get in your car today and you're going to stop there and wait and you're going to say, this is good, all right? All right, critical question. If contentment is this wonderful thing, which it is, where does it come from? How does it come about that people become contented. The conventional wisdom underlies much of that in our day today. The conventional wisdom is, you will be content when you satisfy your desires. So for instance, if the only right circumstance that has to fall into place, if that would just somehow, all the right circumstances you've dreamed up in your head would fall into place, if you just had adequate financial resource, or the right home, or the, the many possessions that your heart desires, or the job that would really satisfy you, then you'd be content. Or you're in a season of life right now that's just too demanding, too much strain, too much stress associated with it. So contentment's not possible to you today, but someday, <gasps> Someday, next year, next decade, you move into another season of life. When that happens, then I will be content. Or you don't have the right alignment of relationships in your life right now. You have too many difficult people in your life to be content. But the right people are going to come along, you believe, and enter into your life. And then, ah, you will be content. And if the wrong people would change or die out of your life, that would also make you content. Ah. You're looking for some set of circumstance to make you content. And if you could just engineer them appropriately, then you could satisfy your desire and, ah, be content. It gets even more complicated. While complaining about having too many demands upon our lives, we feel uneasy if there are none. While speaking about the burden of emails, an empty email box makes us sad. Nobody cares. While speaking wishfully about having an empty desk, we fear the day when that actually might come true. You see, friends, it doesn't work. There is no toy. There is no place. There is no job. There is no set of circumstances that will bring lasting contentment to human beings. And you just have to face it. You just have to acknowledge that. It always wears off what you think is going to be the answer. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the Bible has a profound piece of wisdom that addresses the human condition today just as it did thousands of years ago when it was written. All man's efforts are for his mouth. That is, people have this tendency to work to satisfy their appetites, yet their appetite is never satisfied. People work and work to satisfy their appetite for pleasure, for success, for possessions, or any number of things. 
But there's this cycle of appetites. The more you feed an appetite, the stronger it gets. The more you feed it, you think you're going to satisfy it, but instead you've created this insatiable monster in you. It's a deadly, deadly monster, folks. When it strikes, a fine-tuned, running five-year-old car becomes an embarrassment that must be replaced by something with style. When it strikes, a subdivision home becomes substandard, utterly unacceptable. It's time to call the custom contractors. When this monster strikes, I have absolutely nothing to wear, even though my closet is stuffed full of clothing. Can you relate to what I'm saying here? Most of us can. Most of us wrestle every day with the monster of more. That insatiable appetite for one more acquisition, one more purchase, one more upgrade, one more decimal point in our salary figure. There is another way to do life, folks. There is a good shepherd who has slayed the monster of more to protect his sheep and who knows exactly what we need and who knows what we don't need and who knows what would be good for us and who knows what would be better than uh, than for us than we do that other way to do life is to put ourselves in the shepherd's hands and let him lead a few things that people who've learned to be content as having the lord as their shepherd i'll give you three and the first one is this people who are on the road to contentment relentlessly establish realistic expectations this is so critical. We approach events in our lives with what might be called hidden or unrealistic expectations. We guess and fantasize about what the payoff is going to be. And we set ourselves up very often when we do this for discontentment. We think a change like a new job or a new house or a vacation will meet every need that we have and will provide our lives with meaning, status, joy. But when we finally get it, it's enormously disappointing because we expected it to do so much more than it does. When we get married, my wife Jennifer had this expectation that when she got married, it would be to a man that would satisfy her every desire, just provide a kind of nonstop thrill ride for emotional intimacy, personal affirmation, security, physical ecstasy, you name it. That actually worked out pretty well for her now that I think about it. <laughs> Second thing, people who are on the road to contentment learn to give latitude to the attitude of gratitude. Cultivate gratitude for what you have. I bet I mention this to every single person who comes in to see me in the care ministry. What are you thankful for? What do you have gratitude for? What do you have rather than what don't you have? In particular, practice gratitude for less than perfect gifts. Gratitude for less than perfect gifts. The Bible speaks often about the attitude of gratitude. Always give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us always. In other words, cultivate gratitude. Think gratitude in every situation. Cultivate gratitude even for things that aren't perfect. Into your life at various times will come gifts. They will always be imperfect gifts unless they're from the Lord. The people and the experiences that come into your life will never match perfection. They are sheep after all. And if you wait for them to be perfect before you practice gratitude, you will never practice gratitude at all. You must learn to celebrate imperfect gifts and to cultivate wonder and thankfulness for them because the truth is we've learned to take stuff for granted when the fact is all of it, all of it comes to us as a gift. 
When your eyes open in the morning, they do so because God gave you the gift of a day. The sun comes up because God is giving you a gift of another day. What does the Bible say? Rejoice in it. And wise people learn to cultivate and practice gratitude. Some of you here are married, and you just need to accept the fact that you're married to an imperfect person. Am I right? And there's someone that you need to go to after this service and say, I'm grateful I'm married to you, and here's why. Some of you are here and you're not married, and there's someone that you need to go after the service and say, I'm grateful that I'm not married, not married to you. <laughs> and here's why. <laughs> Please don't do that. <laughs> contented people, contented people have a large capacity for gratitude. What's your capacity for gratitude? Have you ever thought about it like an equation like that? What if that is a, a really good equation to think about? In other words, if I can't practice gratitude, how content am I? People who are contented have a large capacity for gratitude and for wonder. And that's no accident, friends. They, they learn it, they cultivate it. In the midst of their struggles, they don't forget to rejoice. They don't forget to be thankful. You know, the truth about life is that it is hard and it is painful, but it is also good, isn't it? Underneath it all, life is a good thing. To be alive is a good thing. And people who learn the secret of contentment are people that cultivate gratitude. Third thing, the third thing is this, and this gets right to the heart of it. When you think about it, what, is, what it is as a sheep that you're going to invest your life in, what is it? So as a sheep, I've got to invest my life in something. I've got to follow something. What is it? I would say this to you. Stake your soul on the source of satisfaction. Don't blow your one and only life chasing after a toy or following another sheep that cannot bring you contentment. Jesus put it like this. He's talking about what you do with your life, and this is what he says. Don't worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. You shall not want. Contentment, it turns out, is not the goal. It's the byproduct of a certain kind of living. And the only people who are truly content are the people whose ultimate aim in life is something far bigger than mere contentment. David does not speak about contentment lightly. He's not being glib. David didn't hydroplane over life without any difficult situations in his life. He knows what he's talking about here. He's been hungry. He's been alone. He's been attacked by both man and beast. His family has fallen apart. He's been ridiculed and undermined. So how is it that he's able to say in this moment, I shall not want? It's because the aim of his life is something bigger than just being content. It's because the aim of his life is not just a lifestyle of comfort or convenience. The aim of his life is to know God and to know God's kind of life and to follow his Lord, a sheep following his shepherd, so as to become God's kind of person in this world. And David discovered this is the one thing that can satisfy the human soul. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So his life is not about what he does or doesn't possess or what he does or doesn't achieve. His attention is fastened elsewhere, higher, if you will, on the shepherd, on the good shepherd like any good sheep. He has come to understand that what human beings ultimately crave is eternal 
What you crave cannot be satisfied by any human circumstance or relationship or job or possession or title. It can't because you are an eternal being created to live for all time and beyond with God. You were created to know love and joy and no toy, no matter how big, how fantastic the plastic wrapper is around it, will do it for you. And over and over the Bible says this, Isaiah 55 again, written a long time ago. The prophet Isaiah is trying to picture to people of his day what it is that contentment looks like. And he lays it out like this. Don't waste your money on toys that cannot make you content. And a few lines later kind of says this, kind of the pivotal part in this passage. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Stake your life on what alone can satisfy your soul. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Author C.S. Lewis put it like this. I love this quote. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the scriptures, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday by the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now those are words, friends, to put on a tombstone for the world. We are far too easily pleased. The world chases its whole life long after toys. Not a world that desires too much, but settles for too little. We settle for too little. We are far too easily pleased, friends. Don't be too easily pleased. I want to invite you to ask yourself, what are the things that you have been chasing after for a while? Are they worthy? Isn't it time that you purposed in your heart that you're going to pursue and follow the good shepherd who alone can bring true contentment to your soul? What would your life look like if instead of the endless chase for what I need to buy, what I think I need to acquire, what I need to change, instead, what would my life look like? What would your life look like if instead of this you said, I'm just a sheep. Lord, you're my light. Lord, you're my path. Lord, you're the shepherd of my soul. You are all I want. 